Into the mix tonight. Sinai toilet of blood and wailing. Uh, British troops kick Ottoman butt. And Lakers cry over Super Bowl loss. Plus, coming up, we go inside the nest of the giant killer bee. The one that stings your brain. Those are the headlines. No money, no beer, no problem. Uh, news bang. Cutting through the crap with the power of fact. 1978. 1978. A year that will go down in infamy, or at least in the top 1,000. The Iranian revolution kicked off when an article insulted Ruhollah Khomeini, calling him an Indian Syed. Well, you don't do that to a man with a name like Khomeini without expecting some backlash. Protests erupted in Qom, which is either a city or a popular Persian yogurt. The Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, was on holiday at the time and couldn't be bothered to return. Khomeini, now as mad as a mullah with gout, returned from exile and took control as supreme leader. Not to be confused with the Star Wars baddie. He immediately set about imposing Sharia law and banning everything fun. Women were forced to wear headscarves and men had to grow ridiculous facial hair. The world watched in horror as Iran descended into the grips of fundamentalism. The West responded by boycotting their carpets and bazaar sales plummeted. But it was too late. The genie was out of the bottle and wearing a turban. I mean, genies don't wear turbans, do they? Tatinda 1917. 1917, and it's war, war, war. The British Empire, a global force so powerful they could stop at traffic lights and the cars would change, squared up against the Ottoman Empire, who had just discovered central heating. The Battle of Rafa kicked off in Palestine, a region so disputed even its name can't make up its mind. The Sinai Peninsula, a land bridge that doubled as a holiday destination for wealthy pharaohs, was caught in the crossfire. 600,000 people looked on as Allied forces stormed the beaches of Gaza Strip like they'd found an all-you-can-eat buffet. Eyewitness Ahmad bin Haddad said, It was carnage. Sandwiches everywhere. Rafa became a bloodbath as both sides fought tooth and nail for control of this strategic stronghold. I saw men stabbed with their own bayonets, said one bystander. And that was just during the pre-match warm-up. The fighting raged on for days or hours, depending on how fast you could run away. In the end, the British emerged victorious thanks to their superior numbers and better uniforms. The Ottomans retreated back to lick their wounds and invest in some throw cushions. 1972. In sporting news, it's a tale of hoops and heartache for the Los Angeles Lakers tonight, as their three-pointers were thwarted by the Milwaukee Bucks. The Lakers, who usually sink more baskets than a Harlem Globetrotter at a picnic, were left dribbling in disbelief as the Bucks stole the ball and ran off with a victory. It was a courtside drama fit for Hollywood, but not in a good way for Lakers fans. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's skyhook was nowhere to be seen as Kareem Abdul-No-Jabbar became more fitting. Meanwhile, Magic Johnson's magic touch deserted him faster than an HIV test result. The Crypto.com Arena, or The Crypt as it's known to its undertaker, was silent as the Bucks sank shot after shot like they were playing against Stephen Hawking at Connect Four. The crowd filed out looking glummer than Scottie Pippen at an all-star game selfie. For the Bucks, this win is like discovering your wife isn't your sister. Unexpected, but you'll take it. 
They now move up to third place in the NBA, where they hope to continue their slam dunk successes. News bang. The news stripped bare of its artificial intelligence. Here's Shakanaka Giles with the latest weather update. Tomorrow, a frosty start in the southeast, like the kiss of a jilted ex. A brisk two degrees, but don't fret, the day will warm up to a bearable eight. In the Midlands, a grey day with a hint of drizzle, like a whiny teenager complaining about their homework. Scotland and the north of England, where the wind will be as wild as a bagpiper's whale. Batten down the hatches, folks. And finally, Wales, the day will start off dry, but by evening, the heavens will open, releasing a torrential downpour, as if the gods themselves are having a water fight. In summary, chilly in the south, moody in the middle, wild in the north, and soggy in the west. Stay warm, stay dry, and remember, tomorrow is another day. And that's all the weather. Nineteen ninety one. In a turn of events that has left the world on tenterhooks, the Geneva Peace Conference of January nineteen ninety one sought to resolve the Iraqi occupation of Kuwait through diplomatic means. However, the intransigence of both parties resulted in the Gulf War. The invasion of Kuwait by Iraq in August nineteen ninety was met with international condemnation. The United Nations Security Council issued an ultimatum for Iraq to withdraw by January nineteen ninety one or face military action. Now we turn to our correspondent, Brian Bastable, for further insights. This is the middle of a madman circus where dreams and nightmares merge. The drums of war are rolling, my friends. The skies are filled with black smoke as the sounds of destruction ring in my ears. I can feel the earth beneath me tremble as the tanks trundle by. The scene before me is one of chaos and destruction. Bodies lie scattered across the ground as the screams of the wounded fill the air. The smell of burning flesh is overwhelming as the flames lick the sky. This is the Gulf War, my friends. The war that was sparked by the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. The war that has brought the world to the brink of destruction. The Geneva Peace Conference was supposed to be the answer, the chance for both sides to come together and find a peaceful solution. But it was not to be. The Iraqis refused to move on their initial positions, condemning the world to a war that would claim the lives of thousands. The United Nations Security Council issued an ultimatum for Iraq to withdraw by January 1991 or face military action, but the Iraqis did not budge. And now here we are. The war has begun, the bombs are falling, the bullets are flying and the tanks are rolling. This is the Gulf War, my friends. The war that will be remembered for generations to come. The war that will go down in history as the war that brought the world to its knees. 
But for now, I must go. The battle rages on, and I must report on it. For this is the theater of war, and I am but a humble player in this grand production. And as I leave this stage, I do so with the knowledge that the story is far from over. This is Brian Bastable reporting live from the front lines of the Gulf War. Ah! It's 2015, In a tragic turn of events, a Mozambican funeral turned fatal when 75 attendees perished, and 230 more fell ill after imbibing contaminated beer. The culprit, Burkholderia gladioli, a bacterium that unleashed a toxic compound, boncrecic acid, into the brew. Tete province, home to 2,648,941 souls, bore witness to this calamity. To shed light on the investigation, we turn to our correspondent Ken Shit. Ken, what's the latest on this story? Greetings, degenerates. As we hurtle towards the future like a runaway freight train, let's take a moment to remember the year 2015, when a simple funeral in Mozambique turned into a fucking nightmare. In Tete province, where the population is as vast as the Sahara and just as goddamn desolate, 75 people lost their lives and 230 more were left to suffer after consuming contaminated beer. The beer was laced with Burkholderia gladioli, a bacterium so vile it could make a zombie blush. This evil little microbe produced a toxic compound called boncrecic acid, which is about as pleasant as having your insides eaten by rats. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything more fucking disgusting than dying from poisoned beer at a funeral. It's like something out of a horror movie directed by Lucio Fulci on acid. And let me tell you folks, this wasn't some random occurrence. It was preventable. These poor souls didn't have to die like this. They didn't have to suffer like this. But no, fate had other plans for them. And now they're gone, leaving behind families and friends who are left to pick up the pieces and try to make sense of it all. This is Ken Shit reminding you that life is fragile and that we should cherish every moment we have on this godforsaken planet. Because one day, it could all be taken away from us in the blink of an eye, just like those 75 souls in Mozambique. 1970. In a momentous stride towards inclusivity, the island nation of Singapore established the Presidential Council for Minority Rights in 1970. This council, a bulwark against discrimination, wields the power to examine and, if necessary, return legislation to Parliament for reconsideration, thereby ensuring fairness for all. Moreover, the council scrutinizes subsidiary legislation, determines the qualifications of presidential candidates, and appoints members to the Presidential Council for Religious Harmony. And to delve deeper into the intricacies of this historic move, we now turn to our reporter, Hardiman Pesto. I'm here with Singapore's first female president, Madam Halima Jacob. Madam, you've just come from a meeting with the Presidential Council for Minority Rights. Can you tell us a little about that? Certainly, Hardiman. The Presidential Council for Minority Rights is a very important institution in Singapore. It ensures that the rights of minorities are protected and that legislation is fair and just for all. I see. And what exactly did you discuss in your meeting? We discussed the upcoming review of the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act. The Council will be examining the Act to ensure that it continues to promote religious harmony and prevent discrimination. 
And what's your stance on the Act? I believe that the Act is essential for maintaining religious harmony in Singapore. It ensures that all religions are treated equally and that there is no discrimination. But what about freedom of speech? Doesn't the Act restrict that? Freedom of speech is important, but it must be exercised responsibly. The Act is in place to prevent hate speech and incitement of religious tensions. But who decides what is hate speech and what is not? The Presidential Council for Minority Rights, along with other relevant authorities, will determine what constitutes hate speech. But what if they get it wrong? The Council will carefully consider all perspectives before making a decision. It is important to remember that the Council is made up of members from different religious and ethnic backgrounds, ensuring a diverse range of perspectives. I see. Well, thank you for your time, Madam Halama Jakob. You're welcome, Hardiman. So a council of powerless politicians and activists with some administrative duties and a few symbolic responsibilities, then? Pesto, you've got to ask the tough questions. You let her off the hook. I'll try to do better next time, Martin. See that you do. Hardiman Pesto, live from Singapore. 1975. In a whirlwind of wind and snow, the United States found itself in the crosshairs of a great storm a maelstrom of epic proportions that unleashed a barrage of tornadoes and snowfall of such magnitude, it left the Midwest reeling. The storm, a veritable trifecta of meteorological malevolence, wreaked havoc, claiming lives and cementing its place as one of the most devastating blizzards in the annals of American weather history. To unravel the intricacies of this extraordinary weather event, we turn to CBN's Melody Wintergreen, The year is 1975 and Mother Nature is throwing a tantrum that would put any toddler to shame. The skies over the central and southeastern United States have become an atmospheric battlefield where cold fronts clash with warm air like titans of old, birthing 45 tornadoes in a wrathful waltz across the land. This meteorological melee has unleashed a blizzard with such ferocity that even the most grizzled Midwesterners are left shivering in their snow boots. As the tempest rages, towns are turned into snow globes shaken by an unseen hand, while twisters dance a deadly jig through the countryside. The storm's icy fingers grip the heartland with a chill that whispers tales of Jack Frost's meaner cousin. It's not just a flurry, it's an avalanche of chaos raining down from the heavens. In the aftermath, families huddle together, sharing warmth and stories of survival as they emerge from their homes like groundhogs wary of winter's shadow. The storm has etched its place in history books and etched lines of worry on weather-beaten faces. And yet, amidst the destruction, there's a glimmer of human spirit shining brighter than any lightning bolt. Communities band together, neighbors shovel side by side, and strangers become friends bonded by adversity. It's a testament to the resilience that blooms even in the coldest of winters. So as we stand here in the frosty aftermath, let us remember this day not just for nature's fury, but for humanity's fortitude. This is Melody Wintergreen, reporting from the heart of history's icy embrace. News bang, firing the facts at Fiction's Fortress. Today, we revisit the world of basketball in 1972 when the Los Angeles Lakers' record-breaking winning streak was halted by the Milwaukee Bucks. Ryder Boff guides us through this historic day in the NBA. 
The year is 1972 and the Los Angeles Lakers, those darlings of the NBA, have just had their wings clipped by the Milwaukee Bucks. The Lakers' 33-game winning streak, a veritable conga line of victories, has come to an abrupt halt. It's like watching a swan dive into an empty pool. And let me tell you, that Crypto.com arena was as silent as a mime's funeral when the final buzzer sounded. Now, these Lakers have been bouncing balls longer than I've been chasing stories, with 17 NBA championships under their belt. But on this day in 72, it was the Bucks who bucked up and showed them how the deer leap. And there they go. The Lakers are moving like gazelles in designer sneakers. But wait, here come the Bucks. Not actual deer, mind you, though they're jumping high enough to look like they've got springs for legs. Oh, dear. The ball is stolen faster than my Aunt Gertrude's pearls at her fifth wedding. I remember covering a game back then. It was so cold in Milwaukee, you could use your nipples as diamond cutters. And speaking of cold, American football may be king now, but back in 72, basketball was hotter than a curry-eating contest. Let's not forget about those Milwaukee Bucks, professional hoopsters from the land of cheese and beer. They played like men possessed by the spirits of basketball legends past. It was as if George Mikan himself had descended from his heavenly pivot to guide their hands. Personal anecdote time. I once tried out for a local basketball team myself, the Chipping Sodbury Chin Chillers. I fancied myself quite the player until during one fateful game, I went for what I thought would be an awe-inspiring dunk, only to find my shorts left behind on the rim, quite literally caught with my pants down. But let's get back to 72, where it all happened on this very day. Lakers fans were crying into their foam fingers, while Bucks supporters were more jubilant than a squirrel at a nut festival. So, there we have it folks, history made and remembered here tonight, because if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. Or at least that's what my second ex-wife used to say before she took off with my record collection. Polybeat brings us updates on travel disruptions and tributes, following the tragic events in Hong Kong and Iran. She'll also remind us why road rage is never the answer, no matter where we are in the world. It's a whirlwind day for us all. Let's start with the 70s. On this very day, 1972 tragedy befell the magnificent Seawise University. This former RMS Queen Elizabeth is currently blazing away on Victoria Harbour in Hong Kong, presenting a very disconcerting scene for the usual glamour and luxury one associates with ocean liners. The Cunard line has been rather tight-lipped about this unprecedented conflagration, and the port itself isn't exactly dancing with joy over the potential implications of its namesake ablaze. Now, if you're planning to sail across to Southampton or New York City anytime soon, I'd advise checking your travel itinerary. Just saying. Fast forward to 2011, what a nail-biting incident unfolded in Iranian skies. A flight of some 277 from Iran Air had an almighty crash near Urmia Airport. With such poor weather conditions and issues with engine management, this tragic event took the lives of 78 out of 105 people on board. For anyone flying out or coming in from Iran today, my heart goes out to you. Be prepared for delays as everyone pays their respects to those lost souls and adjusts to their shaken state of affairs. 
And now back to our regular programming, where we ponder which city will get our heart first today. But whether it's in good old Hong Kong or over in Urmia, please remember, road rage is never the answer. Save your steam for when you really need it. 1992. Calamity Prenderville, your guide to the wacky world of science and technology, delves into the groundbreaking discovery of exoplanets in 1992, a British triumph in space exploration. Tonight, we're time-travelling back to the year 1992, when British radio astronomers Alexander Wolstjan and Dale Frail made a groundbreaking discovery. They found exoplanets, or alien worlds, orbiting a pulsar, a rapidly spinning neutron star. It's like something out of a sci-fi movie, but it's all thanks to British ingenuity. Imagine this, 2,300 light-years away, in the constellation of Virgo, there's a pulsar named PSR B.057 plus and 12. It's not just any pulsar, it's a millisecond pulsar, spinning at an incredible rate of over 600 times per second. And guess what? It's got planets! Now, I know what you're thinking. Calamity, how did they find these alien worlds? Well, my dear viewers, it's all down to pulsar timing. You see, pulsars emit regular radio pulses, like a cosmic lighthouse, by measuring the tiny variations in these pulses, astronomers can detect the gravitational pull of orbiting planets. It's like listening to the ticking of a cosmic clock, and it's all thanks to British innovation. Fast forward to today, and we've discovered over 5,500 exoplanets in over 4,000 planetary systems. And the James Webb Space Telescope, a British-led project, is set to provide even more information about these alien worlds. Who knows what we'll find next? Alien life, intergalactic casseroles, only time will tell. So there you have it, folks. The discovery of exoplanets. A British triumph in the realm of space exploration. It's a reminder that the universe is full of surprises and who knows what we'll find next. This is Calamity Prenderville, signing off from Newsbang. Good night. News bang, exposing the wicked witch of wrongness. And now for the final roundup of tomorrow's headlines. The Times, Greeks capture Klisura Pass in Albania. The Telegraph, Metropolitan Railway opens. There's a photo there of a train, not a bad one. The Guardian, Metropolis released in Germany. And that's it. Just time to say goodnight. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>